welcome to the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to talk about membranes and water and wastewater application. Today's guest is Frederick Tack, who is the Water Resource and Wastewater Utility Consultant. He serves as a Technical Director and Project Director with GHD, where he leads a team of engineers, operators, and designers in the planning, engineering, operations, management, and compliance of water and wastewater treatment infrastructure across the U.S. Southwest. He has over 22 years of experience as a project director, and he focuses on developing a sustaining client relationships, bid and delivery strategy, managing commercial issues, elevating comprehension through the project scope, and selecting the right project manager and technical team. As a technical director, he has led teams to elevate 12 projects to be recognized for 26 awards, which is a big deal for technical excellence over the past six years. And he has sealed as an engineer over 300 final designs. Frederick is also a certified operator. He has led the day-to-day operations, maintenance, compliance, and optimization of both public and private wastewater treatment facilities. And we're just very excited to have you come and talk with us. I know we've been trying to connect for like months now. (laughs) Yeah, Heather, it's uh, glad to be here and uh, glad to speak with you today. Yes, awesome. So before we dive in, I wanted to talk real quickly about the book that you helped edit. Can you just tell us about that real quick? I'd be glad to. I you know, really just had a small role as an editor, but I had the opportunity to support the preparation and publication of a uh, manual by the Water Environment Federation and Water Professional International called the Wastewater Treatment Fundamentals 3 Advanced Treatment. There are a number of more than qualified authors and preparers of that manual. And myself and another dozen or so colleagues had the opportunity to provide some edit on that manual. But it's really a great and uh, it's the most recent manual for operators in helping train for advanced treatment, taking on really insight and opportunity to learn more and build that body of knowledge around advanced treatment infrastructure, such as uh, membrane processes, uh, advanced oxidation, emerging contaminants. And really advanced treatment as we start to combine water and wastewater treatment processes together. Yeah, especially with direct potable reuse coming up, becoming more and more to the forefront, especially here in the Southwest area. Yeah, absolutely. The need for operators to understand uh, maybe more than they have had to in the past, right? Maybe uh, Mm -hmm. focus on just chemical, needing to understand the biological and vice versa. Those wastewater treatment operators being versed with water treatment concept and vice versa as well. Yeah. So we're going to actually just talk about that membrane section and then your personal experience out in the field. And I'm rather excited about it. I've traveled all over the U.S. and seen a wide variety of membrane systems. And it's always interesting. I'm like, what kind of system do you have? And they're like, well, membrane. I'm like, well, what kind of membranes? (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about those different membrane processes. Sure. Yeah. So starting off that high level, and I was asking the same questions or I would have had the same response. Right, 12, 14 years ago when I get started uh, being mm-hmm. introduced to and learning about uh, implementing membrane processes and water wastewater treatment, uh, I was like, yeah, I have a, it's a membrane. But, you know, there are differences typically categorized first by pore size or the ability to separate different size ions and particles. And they really start with that smallest layer of filtration, right? And really that's what a membrane is doing is separating a physical process by that separation for the most part. The first or really largest pore size is what we call a microfilter or MF, it would be commonly referred to. Mm-hmm. And those have the ability to screen out or filter out um, certain size particles, sediment, things like algae. Also, most protozoan bacteria are a large enough size to get screened out by that. Okay. It has applications in water and wastewater as well. Yeah, I, I've seen those used in both locations. So, yeah. And, you know, commonly referred to, we'll talk about it later, a membrane bioreactor most likely is a MF-sized membrane. And each of these membranes that will, you know, types have different size configurations, but just at that high level of the different types, that next pore size, a little bit smaller, is what we refer to as ultrafiltration. That can actually remove small colloids and some virus, and again, more viruses as well. And it has specific applications also for water and wastewater treatment probably more commonly used in water treatment. And just to mention it with each of these type of filters, they could be used as a pre-treatment in order Uh to prepare water or wastewater for further treatment. 
whether it be physical, chemical, or biological down the line. The next size after that is nanofiltration. So even smaller, that's gonna capture, uh, get down to dissolved organic matter size or molecule and anion size and mm -hmm. divalent ions, being able to remove some salts and metals as well that happen to be dissolved. And then the smallest size available or uh, most prominent is what we refer to as reverse osmosis. And there's a variety of um, options and variables in that, but that mm -hmm. can really get down to remove trace contaminants and down to that molecular level. So that's going to provide the smallest or the highest amount of uh, separation and removal. And my first experience with RO was actually at my first job coming out of school. And it was a huge train that we had because we were using a lot of water and stuff. And just looking at that, I was just like, ooh, I just want to pull that apart and see what it's like inside. But once it's built, they don't usually like to let the engineers pull things apart. So, you know. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I, I definitely share that interest in wanting to tinker and play with. And in fact, that's how I got involved with operations. You know, I'm an engineer by initial education and training, but about 14 years ago, I had the opportunity to get involved with operations. And what I loved is just the opportunity to actually touch stuff. What happens when mm -hmm. I turn this on or turn it off? And of course, safely and with the right direction. But that really helped me, you know, what I learned from my operational experience, even at the lowest level of competency, uh, whether it was mucking out a base and or turning a valve, I learned more about how to design and, and manage these type of treatment systems from that mm -hmm. experience than I did sitting behind a desk and reading a book. Both very valuable, but the insight from the tinkering is extremely helpful. And 100% agree. 100% agree. So what kind of applications have you seen with these kind of membranes? Yeah. So starting uh, back with that largest pore size, that microfiltration, right? On the wastewater side, again, that membrane bioreactor. Um, this is a really common application and has been for over a decade mm -hmm. for that filtration process. So typically in your wastewater treatment process, we have primary or preliminary treatment to screen out and start to separate liquids and solids, that secondary process for some biological nutrient removal, and then uh, finally a tertiary process. So a microfilter or other type of filters or this type of membrane can be used to supplement that or to be that tertiary step. So mm -hmm. commonly in wastewater, it would be used to help reduce the size of the infrastructure uh, and scale that's needed to provide that tertiary step. Um, and there's a variety of configurations where it can be bolted on or added into and made part of that wastewater configuration. On the water treatment side, uh, I see microfiltration used most commonly with groundwater or I'm sorry, uh -huh. surface water treatment to prepare water for further filtration or cleaning, whether it might be ultrafiltration or nano or RO filtration down the line. And it's really that uh, could be a high level screening process to help remove remaining sediment and uh, other organic materials that mm -hmm. might cause an increase of really size or scale of that downstream treatment process. Yeah, I did visit one plant one time. They had a, a new food producer come into town that made beef products. And they had an MBR or, you know, microfiltration. And uh, they had beef chunks coming into them and into their memories. <laughs> and I'm like, that'll stop that from coming in. But, or you know, oh, they were so, so angry. <laughs> I'm sure. No, that, that sounds like a lot. I've also seen it in industrial applications, mm -hmm. such as for... Um, like in automotive manufacturing, you would you oh, could use mm -hmm. a, a microfiltration to filter out things like paint chips and particles, uh, other type yeah. of loose colloids um, that would get collected. There's definitely some pros and cons to how much maintenance is needed for it, but it does have a wide variety of applications, and it's a fairly robust type of technology. As we talk about configurations later, each of these type of membranes do require protection. They need to be screened from certain size of items. So ideally, you don't get the beef chunks coming up against yeah. your, <laughs> your microfilter. But um, they each have that uh, unique requirement. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on to ultrafiltration, right? I see a lot of that mainly more in the water treatment, a lot mm -hmm. of surface water treatment, where you do have more suspended particles that you do want to remove along with some organic contaminants. Typically, though, ultrafiltration for a large enough uh, facility would require some other pre-preparation of that water, either through microfiltration or some type of sediment process. And um, once we get into this finer pore size of membranes, such as ultra, nano, and RO, 
it is common to see these combined with each other. So a first larger step like a MF or UF type filter prior to a reverse osmosis or nanofiltration. That also just helps reduce the load, the loading on those downstream membrane processes. Well, and they tend to be the more expensive ones. That is true. A little protection can go a long way. <laughs> it really can. And then, uh, you know, when you get a nanofiltration, there's many applications that I found where nanofiltration can be used for many common purposes that uh, reverse osmosis may also be used. Now, reverse osmosis has definitely a smaller pore size and can remove more soluble material and mm -hmm. uh, ions. But many times the constituents of concern are colloids or are large enough compounds that the nanofiltration can reduce that significantly. Um, so it's something we always consider when we're evaluating what type of membrane to select for a process. Mm -hmm. And other thoughts or concerns as well is the amount of waste product that's generated from these. So once you get down to that nanofiltration of reverse osmosis scale, you really start the, um, your ability to manage the waste stream may become your deciding factor on which that you use, but uh, mainly see this nanofiltration in um, water, surface water and, and groundwater treatment and advanced water treatment, again, polishing or purifying wastewater when it's reclaimed, maybe for some sort of specific purpose or industrial use. Mm -hmm. And then that brings us to reverse osmosis being that finest pore size, again, very heavily used in water treatment and or advanced water treatment to polish yeah. that tertiary effluent. Well, and that's when you start getting down to colors and things like that. I have some customers that they're like, well, we add fruit punch to our beverages or, you know, we add food colored whatever, and we can't send that down to the POTW. And I'm like, well, there's one way to do it. There is. So it really is a good purification step. Yeah. So in general, what kind of process configuration would someone who's going to be putting this in or have already in place? Yeah, great question. And that really starts to get at the design process of, and really even considering for selection, how would I select or evaluate these different technologies? So once we get to the really nanofiltration or reverse osmosis, that requires a uh, high pressure or higher pressure feed into these mm -hmm. membrane processes to make this uh, membrane separation happen. So depending on your source and any pretreatment or prior step to this, Generally, there would need to be a brake tank or some sort of equalization tank so that you could force feed or high pressure feed this through the membrane processes. It can be done through inline pumping through other processes, but that becomes the first step. Yeah, and they don't like slugs. Right. That's why you've got that EQ. You want something very consistent and stable. Absolutely. And also so you can monitor that feed and slug mm -hmm. uh, plug flow type reactor you're counting on that entire body or volume being of the same quality and being homogenous, and that may not always be the case. With the microfiltration, ultrafiltration, again, pressure is required, but a lower pressure. And even sometimes with a microfiltration, just a, a gravity pressure, especially in a wastewater treatment. Mm -hmm. I would say newer in the past five years, not that the interest or research hasn't been there, but it's starting to become more common to design uh, water wastewater treatment plants that use a membrane bioreactor or microfiltration to use the gravity of the system to push that clean water through there rather than having to add the pumps to vacuum that out. But continuing with the reverse osmosis, you would have that high pressure. You would also need to potentially stabilize and or uh, screen or pretreat that water. So it is mm -hmm. common to have an ultra filter uh, or an MF filter prior to that reverse osmosis, depending on the quality of water. And then uh, any adjustment to that water for pH really to stabilize it. And then also the ability to add an anti-scalant or, you know, the ability to stabilize that water to not foul yeah. your membranes. And tell us what fouling means. Yeah. So really the accumulation of material, typically a, a biological, but it could be a, you know, a deposition from products or constituents that are in the water, like a salt, a magnesium salt, or calcium salt that could be building up on the surface or inside the pores of that membrane. And that is common and typical to occur. Um, again, you're using the membrane to separate out some of these, but if they're not staying yeah. soluble, they can precipitate out on the membrane. So there's a variety of different chemicals that can help either prevent that from happening, keeping it soluble, and or during the cleaning process to break that back into a soluble state and be able to wash that out. And I can hear a lot of operators going, amen. 
with yeah. the spelling. <laughs> like, yeah. It's a really big, it needs to be a big focus as you're considering this, right? It's very easy to say, hey, reverse osmosis can get it out. But at what cost? And when I say cost, I mean the level of effort. Most of us can appreciate something that is a very set it and forget it. And when it gets to membrane operation, that's not always the case. So being yeah. able to quantify and understand and get that buy-in. Hey, this is how much effort this is going to take. This is the amount of chemicals we're going to use and how often we need to be monitoring it. The nanofiltration um, configuration, similar to the reverse osmosis, it may or may not have some upstream filter process like a, a MF or UF filter. But if not, uh, there typically would be some sort of filter like a bag or cartridge filter uh, just to yeah. minimize the potential or remove the potential for things like sand, debris, grit to foul or, or hurt that uh, filter as well. Once you get down to an ultra filter or micro filter like an MBR, uh, most manufacturers uh, have a mandatory screening to screen out larger particles and colloids. Mm -hmm. For microfiltration, it's typically two millimeters. So needing to pass all your water through a two millimeter screen before it gets into any other process before the microfiltration. An ultrafiltration, yeah. typically like a five micron to 10 micron bag filter would be appropriate. But each of these processes is going to have a waste stream and based on their configuration mm -hmm. and their type of membrane, which we can talk about here in a little bit, depends on where that waste stream will go. Most of these are forward flow, meaning we're, we're putting pressure on these membranes, the ultra filter, nano filter, and reverse osmosis at varying pressure levels to push the mm -hmm. clean water through. Others, uh, there are some configurations that have a better vacuum based. So they're sucking the clean water out and or I'm sucking the dirty water out, so to speak. Microfilter and MBR are very typical to be using a vacuum, a very low pressure vacuum system to mm -hmm. pull the clean water through the membrane. And that keeps the dirty water on the outside. And that's a good configuration for a wastewater treatment application. Yeah. And I think it's important, like you were talking about having a, a reject or concentrate there. A lot of people don't think about, oh, now I need to deal with that as well. You know, I've screened all the impurities out but now I have this concentrated brine or you know solution that we've got to handle. I've seen a lot of conversations around, you know, how much are we going to actually produce to what actually is coming in? Sometimes I think that's hard to identify the quantities of if you're having yeah. variable in inlets or something. Yeah. So that really gets to probably what is the most important decision-making factor across most membrane processes and especially the more fine pore size nanofiltration RO. And that's the management of that waste stream. Uh, also, we refer to it as concentrate or that and in a, uh, in a RO, it, it can also be referred to as a brine stream because it's very salty. But yeah. the waste stream will become your limiting factor for the majority of these membrane applications. So there are other treatment processes, biological and other physical and chemical treatment processes that are selective. We're selectively removing the contaminants we do not want or desire in that discharge. And yeah. that actually helps reduce your waste stream concentration and volume. In a membrane process, it's taking out everything that is a certain pore size. Uh -huh. So for an example, Fluoride, which is positive when in low enough quantities and can be a negative impact in high enough quantities, uh, reverse osmosis has the ability to take that out, right? That ion size of that fluoride compound. However, it's taking everything else out. So if you have high total um, dissolved solids, if you have, you know, other high constituent concentrations, it's going to take that out too. So you may need to manage a very high concentrated salty or um, it could have a lot of arsenic or other components that mm -hmm. you don't really want into that waste stream. So that may limit your ability to uh, dispose of that. There are generally five methods for managing that waste stream from a membrane type treatment process. Uh -huh. The first would be just discharging to a sanitary sewer or public treatment works. Which they're not ever excited about. They don't like that. <laughs> Generally not. Um, and that really has to do with just the concentration. And they need to maintain their compliance downstream. So yeah. most you know, typical secondary and even tertiary wastewater treatment processes aren't configured to be able to take out more ions. So you give them more total uh, dissolved solids, it's going to pass through the majority of the system. So 
public treatment works get very limited. There's also different impacts that can have on the sanitary sewer system or collection system if you're discharging too. So uh, really a holistic view of that is important. It can be done and it is done at different places. I can think of one where the water treatment plant where that uses a, a RO and uh, NF water treatment is right mm -hmm. beside the wastewater treatment plant. So they don't have to discharge the collection system. The downside is it doesn't commingle or dilute with the rest of the water. So there's a very high strength wastewater, uh, salty wastewater that meets the wastewater treatment plant. And I've done my own independent research and publication on the impact of brine loading on a conventional activated sludge wastewater treatment plant. There is uh -huh. a tipping point. It's fairly high, but each treatment plant should consider that uniquely to what their impact would be. Yeah. I mean, it, you, you can't just send it down and like, ah, oh, it went with the, the socks in the dryer and has disappeared forever kind of thing. Yeah. And it's potentially kicking the can down the road, right? So you're yeah. saving the cost to treat that waste, passing on that cost to someone else who might not be able to treat it. Um, but there are instances where you do have the right fit downstream solutions or processes for that. And that kind of gets to another method, which is evaporation and ultimate mm -hmm. landfill disposal of the solids. So where you have the net positive evaporation rates, where your amount of radiation exceeds your uh, precipitation, and uh, you have the volume available. So basically draw a line from San Francisco to, I don't know, El Paso. And if you're left of that line, you might have a chance to do it. Pretty good chance. Yeah. Otherwise, probably not. So that's another option, but it does take a lot of land, takes a lot of liner, and some may consider it an eyesore, um, but I do think it's a way to very really take advantage of our existing sunlight to help solve that. It does put water back in the hydrologic cycle, so that's a positive. And then the salts are something that can be, um, that after precipitated can be swept up and ultimately disposed in a landfill of much lower volume. True. And the other thing, though, is like the odors, making sure there's, the odors are controlled, but we keep trying to put these away from people. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And there's pros and cons to all of this for sure. Mm -hmm. And no one really wants any of these things in their backyard. Um, the engineer and me, I'm sure, would probably be okay with it. But um, <laughs> I'm not the normal, <laughs> usual person. The homeowner, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. A another major technique to manage this waste stream is to put it into geology. And we call it deep well injection. There mm -hmm. are certain locations that have the right geology and formations to be able to accept a large quantity continuously of this brine. And it can be done either into a confined layer where it's on its own and just being stored or it's being commingled with another brackish groundwater quality. So a groundwater that already exists of a high salt concentration, you're adding more to it. So the difficulty with this, there's plenty of places that do it, but you have to have the geology nearby and it has to be the right geology. So although yeah. it's an option, it's a very limited possibility that you have the right geology. So citing your treatment plant next to the right geology and having all the right studies and work done, that can be uh, very challenging, but it's a possibility. The fourth option would be discharging to mm -hmm. a sea or an ocean, right? So having that proximity to that. Of course, there's the requirement to study and identify that the mixing of these two different water qualities is appropriate for the biological and habitat yeah. around there. But it's you know highly possible, and there are many brine lines around the country that convey these type of waste back to the ocean. And the fifth, and I wouldn't say final way, but the fifth main way is land application. So that would be yeah. where appropriate or approved used for a different type of irrigation of agriculture that is salt resistant crops. There are certain places that allow it for construction type water and um, dust control, but that's uh -huh. very limited. And there's other industrial applications where that salt water is needed, but it's typically one of those five methods that are going to really limit your ability to implement a nano or reverse osmosis membrane treatment successfully. And that's typically where you would start. How do I manage the waste stream? Then I can size the system. And I think that's very opposite to what most people think. They're like, oh, you know, what's our water quality? Not what do we do with it at the end? So yep. I'm really glad you brought that, <laughs> brought that up. I think in there's an RO or not RO, a membrane out there to, to service most waters, but you know, what is the good fit? Yeah. 
And so that's just one of the many variables in implementing membrane filtration. So just some of the advantages, though, uh, quickly is the ability to reduce the scale of the infrastructure it's supporting. So mm -hmm. uh, these membranes in different configurations can fit into a very small footprint and generally replace a traditional or conventional treatment process for water or wastewater. So on the wastewater treatment side, it's replacing that tertiary step. So what would traditionally be a giant secondary clarifier, a big concrete basin, maybe 100 feet wide and 30 feet deep, and a mm -hmm. mechanical mechanism could take up a footprint, a, a third, if not a quarter, and sometimes even a tenth of that and perform the same duty. Yes, it does require more energy. But as I mentioned, in a wastewater treatment side, generally using a micro filter, we're going to have a very low pressure vacuum. And that can even be done with gravity as well. So if that becomes the limiting factor. Uh, there's a common discussion that uh, in the industry and that I have about the cost of uh, membrane treatment versus other. And I've seen in my practice over time that decisions that could reduce the scale of the footprint of the concrete and steel infrastructure generally have the largest long-term impact on the cost to operate because that concrete and steel require significant effort to rehab, rehabilitate, and maintain as well, plus just the capital cost to install. Yeah. Generally, the technology cost, such as for the membranes, is um, less than what that capital cost is for the conventional approach. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to have capital available for replacements and repair, just like you would any other piece of equipment. Yeah. And I've seen them uh, done in like a cargo crate or not crate. Sure. Uh, shipping container. Shipping containers. Yeah. yeah. You know, a series of shipping containers. People have, have kind of like, oh, we don't want to put as much concrete down. We'll just do those. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, issues with that, but I do like how compact it can be, especially, you know, on a smaller site. It does. It also supports the ability for modular expansion, just like mm -hmm. um, reverse osmosis and anofiltration for water treatment as well. Something that can be skid mounted. Those can also fit in a shipping container, you know, at certain scales and be really bolted together or pieced together as needed. You know, when you get into wastewater treatment and putting wastewater in steel, uh, special um, corrosion resistant lining and different systems are definitely required and the life cycle for that may be shorter, mm -hmm. but it can definitely be a good fit solution. So in your experience, typically how big does the RO system have to be to manage you know, a certain population? Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. I guess it depends on water demand. So I'm I'm going to tiptoe around my answer to this, but the, okay, um, yeah, the you know replacement of this RO treatment, it uh, an RO treatment or a membrane treatment could be used for let's say full capacity treatment. Of course, it needs some sort of screening or preparation, get the sticks and stones and debris and sand out. But other yeah. than that, depending on the pore size, you could take all the constituents you want out of your water and then later disinfect it and uh, distribute it. So it then becomes a decision of, will this be a standalone system where I will really only use a membrane treatment process mm -hmm. or a series of these to treat that water? Or am I using this to help polish or selectively remove constituents of concern. So where I see it being a more of a bolt-on solution is where you have something like fluoride, as I mentioned before. Yeah. Generally, there's other constituents that you may want to take out. Here in the Southwest, we our geology is, we're so fortunate to have uh, high quantities of uh, arsenic and other metals uh, in our <laughs> geology. And then, you know, with the farming, yeah. it's, uh, the agriculture history here in Arizona, uh, there's a lot of nitrates as well. So yeah. there are other treatment processes that may be more cost-effective on a larger scale once we get up to 500 gallons per minute, 1,000 gallons per minute, and beyond, where it might make sense to use other treatment techniques for treating that. But those treatment techniques may not be able to take out something like fluoride or a radionuclide. So rather than try and treat the entire flow through a higher cost, at least an energy type system, it might make sense to add this as a bolt-on on the end. So the scale really is dependent on what your quality is, what your volumes are. Once you get up to a large enough size, you know, people, uh, the industry, you know, some of our largest water treatment plants, at least here in Arizona, are over 200 million gallons per day. So a conventional plant at certain scales makes a lot of financial sense and really just ease of operation. But it's also based on that water quality. 
in Carlsbad, California. The Carlsbad desalination plant there treats oh, yeah. 50 million gallons per day all through a reverse osmosis plant. So that scale is appropriate and it's doing seawater desalination, right? So it does not make sense to use a conventional type treatment process to treat that volume of that type of water. So there's no silver bullet. Uh, as an engineer, the right answer to me is always, it depends, right? Yeah. It depends how much volume, <laughs> depends what the quality is, depends where you're at. And to be honest, I really want to go tour that facility to see how that, that all works out. I'm like, that's just mind boggling to me, that quantity. Yeah, well, that's uh, I happen to know one of the engineers who participated in that uh, with my uh, GHD being one of the participant firms, and I had the you know pleasure and opportunity to lead some of the technical work on the hydraulics of the system. It's uh, really a, a very uh, high resilient and high performing type system, and it's mm -hmm. good fit solution for now for that community and for those needs. But it requires you know a lot of a lot of input. Uh, a lot of monitoring, just like any other water treatment plant. Yeah. And and that, that's one thing that a lot of people forget is that it still needs maintenance. It still needs a little love. You're going to need to check in on it. <laughs> yep. Just like all, uh, you know, being a, you know, operator myself, I, on the water and wastewater side, I've, I've learned, and maybe just mm -hmm. through my mentors, but operation is as much a, an art form as it is a science. It's about how things sound and smell and look and vibrate. There's certain vibrations that are good and there's certain vibrations yeah. that are not. And uh, they all need that. So generally, the more components you have, then yeah, the more preventative maintenance, the more spare parts you may need. So as the complexity increases, the need for attention and whether it be an operator, uh, a, a maintenance or an electrician, uh, that may all increase as well. I think what the challenge is for our industry and not just the engineers, but manufacturers and, and really managers as well, is making decisions that help reduce that long-term cost to operate. And that doesn't mean just selecting the easiest or oldest technology. It just... Yeah. What opportunities do we have to innovate and reduce that level of effort that's needed uh, as much as we can in the future? Well, and it also just, and this wasn't in our, our outline, but just thinking of, you know, the increased certification, you know, do you have an operator that can run this? Yeah. I've been in some rural communities where they're like, you know, we're going to put in this RO system. I'm like, but there's no one in your area that, and you're like, where are you going to get the operator for that? Because you have, in your state... I work nationwide. I'm like in your state, you have to have a certain level of certification. And that yeah. can be really hard. It can be. So that is a challenge. And that's really something to be discussed up front, right? That commitment to needing that level, um, the commitment to workforce development. And as not only are you maybe hat, you know, need to have or required to have that level of certification in your operators, but training others towards it as well. The capital savings that you may have with that type of system needs to also be invested elsewhere in your workforce. Yes, invest in the workforce. <laughs> we just made a lot of operators and really happy there with that. So uh, as far as maintenance goes, what kind of typical maintenance are they looking at? Yeah, great question. So we talked about the feed systems and really the post systems, right, of moving mm -hmm. water into and out of these membranes. That's probably where the maintenance uh, starts is uh, just the, you know, preventative maintenance for those pumping and hydraulic systems, whether they're manual or automated valves, are they air actuated or electric actuated, just monitoring and maintaining the health and proficiency of those systems and you know, uh, ensuring that uh, sufficient spares are available and just monitoring that health. That's really the starting point. Uh, with the membrane itself though, each of these different type of membranes have a different approach to what you monitor. So I guess first I'd love to step back just to describe two or three different styles or configurations of these oh, membranes, if you don't good mind. Point. Nope, yeah. go for it. So with the, let's say water treatment membranes, your microfilter, ultrafilter, nano filter and RO. Uh, one type is spiral wound. So that's where we take this membrane material, which is porous, although it might not be porous to your eye. Um, that material is wrapped around a center um, tube where water uh, can be pushed through and fed through or kind of you know, sieve or force through the pores of that membrane and be collected on the other side. Typically they, the water is forced in at the end and drawn out that center tube in the middle. Mm -hmm. 
So this is uh, referred to as a spiral wound type membrane. That's one of the most common. They come in different sizes, both in diameter and in length um, of what these modules are. They could be stacked end to end, and then there could be multiple trains of this as well. And I guess getting back to the configuration, many times we'll have a multi-train pass on a membrane, an UFNF or RO type membrane, where your first water goes through the first row or module of membranes. Mm -hmm. The waste product from that is then sent to another membrane to reduce uh, that waste stream or recover more of that water. And you can multiply those steps multiple times. Two or three is fairly typical. Two would be most typical. So it's all about how much waste water do you want? How What's your percent recovery, which is very dependent on your water quality and your ability to get there. Other configures of micro filters, which uh, considering for wastewater treatment, there are two main types. I'll talk about a third type to both of these, but one is what's called a hollow fiber membrane. So hollow fiber membrane basically looks like a bunch of pieces, a bunch of straws, right? like yeah. a bunch of stick of spaghettis. And those have pores on the inside that the water is drawn through. And those pores are holding back the constituents that you don't want really from the outside in, so vacuum drawn on the middle. Those straws are all connected to a common header at the top and the bottom, which is where the vacuum is pulled from. So a typical cassette or configuration will have just rows and rows, hundreds if not thousands of these little straws or pieces of spaghetti. Yeah. So those hollow fiber have a, a lot of positive, both on their strength, their ability, their quality. And because there's so many of them, if you have a failure in one of them, you have many other points you're able to draw through. Um, the con for that is when you do have a breakthrough to the point where it's noticeable, you do have the ability to pull that out and go find it, but there's more straws to look through. So, you know, it yeah. adds some resiliency, but on the maintenance side, maybe it's a little bit more. It's a spaghetti bowl, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> And uh, they also, uh, they're uh, all these different types are cleaned differently. The type of cleaning solutions or acids or materials that are used to clean them and the amount of cleaning that's needed, which I won't get into today. That last type of uh, MF filter is what's called a flat sheet. So it's the same type of membrane material that is porous. It's welded uh, in a frame. So think of a picture mm -hmm. frame, maybe two feet by two feet or the you know, size of a picture frame. And in between that, there is a space. And in between that space is where the vacuum is pulled from. So you have uh, two sheets of that um, a flat sheet membrane. And then you can have multiple frames of those set into a cassette and drawn from. So those have a different strength and durability. And they generally require less pressure because they're not so tightly wound or packed like those spaghetti. Uh, when they do have a breakthrough, when they fail, again, you have just less frames to look through to find that failure yeah. and something you can remove and fix. So whether it's spiral wound, flat sheet, or hollow fiber, there's also now ceramic options. So a variety of ceramic cast material, which has much increased durability. So the type, this type of membrane has a direct impact on the footprint of the system. So generally from a micro filtration level, a flat sheet membrane may take up the most footprint unless you go very tall. Uh-huh. When you, they take up more footprint than a hollow fiber. Now the hollow fiber just has a lot more um, membranes to pull through. So it can do it in a slightly smaller space. And then the ceramic membranes can do this even through a smaller footprint. But something to think about is you may choose select dedicate to a certain type of technology. If you're starting with the smallest footprint that we currently know of using the ceramic membranes, and something changes in the future and you want to try or do something different, you're probably only going to be able to fit that technology in there. If you have a hollow fiber technology and you want to try a flat sheet, you're not going to have as much footprint for it. But if you start with a flat sheet, you have the opportunity to potentially try some other technologies in the future. Got it. And that's something else to think about too. Yeah, it's something I've learned that, uh, you know, my, my magic ball doesn't work, you know, as well as maybe others. So I'm always interested and surprised with what's next and how do we accommodate that? Yeah. Well, and there's always new technology. Like you said, you know, before we didn't have the ceramics. Yeah. But I mentioned I saw that at WefTech and I was like, oh, this is cool. How does this work? <laughs> Absolutely. Same type of approach. We're using a pressure to either push through or vacuum to suck through. Uh, it's just a more robust material. 
I'm sure the cost to produce that is more and you know probably the cost is more, but uh, again, a smaller footprint. And I still stand behind my statement, the smaller you can make the physical infrastructure, probably the lower the long-term cost to operate. All right. So let's circle back then to like maintenance. Yep. So getting back to the maintenance of those. So I guess starting with the water style uh, spiral wound membranes, right? There's going to be uh, cleaning the unfouling or unscaling of these membranes. So they're going to require periodic and regular intervals of cleaning. Generally, since these membranes are stored inside of a module or a tube, mm -hmm. uh, they can be cleaned in place. So that is opening and closing valves to get the right cleaning solution in there to soak in them for the right period of time and then flushing that out. So, you know, the maintenance focus is that they're maintaining their performance. Typically, that's measured in flux and or the amount of uh, differential pressure across that system and just the overall quality. So you can monitor the quality typically for turbidity. Is there some sort of breakthrough or not or another water quality parameter you're monitoring for your specific system. And then the flux, the, the amount of energy it takes uh, for the net volume of water to you know, pass through that membrane. Each membrane manufacturing configuration will have its own flux range or target and just monitoring that as well. And then implementing the maintenance when needed, the clean in place. If there is a breakthrough, something like that, that's something you could take out of service and pull out. And there's a number of forensic analysis either you know, very simple listening to it, uh, literally with like a stethoscope listening for some type of leak. Uh, I've seen operators be able to do that and find it um, or other type of chemical or really hydraulic type of process. Other than that, the focus on the pumping and the valving systems is really the main part of that maintenance. So that's fairly typical of, you know, what you would have with a conventional plant. If you have clarifiers, you're greasing and monitoring that drive um, yeah. assembly. Uh, you're monitoring the motor for heat or temperature, vibration, things like that. And then the rake itself is, you know, it's just the corrosion, the uh, life and cycle and, and how that's set. And of course, the valves in and out. With a membrane type system, these systems are getting exercised more often, generally. Um, that can help extend certain mechanical components and others mm -hmm. it can wear faster. The membrane or the MBR or MF type membrane for wastewater treatment, those are submerged generally 100% of the time. They need to stay wet once they've uh, started to be applied. So also still monitoring the uh, differential pressure or the flux and also the turbidity, looking for breakthrough of those solids or solid particle moving through that. Uh, they're each going to have uh, air that's fed to those systems. So uh, whether it's a pneumatic or electrically controlled, having the blowers and the valves to control those systems, doing the preventative maintenance and monitoring of those. And then on the downstream processes, so the uh, what we would call the permeate pumps or the vacuum pumps that are going to vacuum that that uh, clean permeate uh -huh. out of there, maintaining those. With most all these systems, just like you would a conventional plant, you're going to want to have uh, the ability to continue operation with your largest system out of service, whether it be a pump or a basin or a, a membrane module. So. What I've seen physically operating these systems, both for water and wastewater treatment versus a conventional system, I and my team spend less time on the daily operations of optimizing the treatment process. There's always control that's needed, but mm -hmm. I need to spend less time on the biological control because I'm getting yeah. consistent effluent from a membrane. Same with water treatment. Your influent quality is going to change uh, seasonally and just, you know, maybe on your source, um, but yeah. you get the same quality coming out. So I have to, I'm less concerned. I have more confidence that the effluent is going to meet a certain criteria. I can spend more time focusing on the preventative maintenance and feeling confident that those systems are working. Where with a conventional system, I feel like I'm <laughs> running around just to make sure <laughs> what the quality is for right now and what is it five minutes from now. And it looks yeah. a little bit more oily. So um, it's just a different focus of your attention. Again, we're all going to be out there for eight or 10 or 12 hours a day, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. and just where are you spending your attention? I'm just thinking then you know, the microbes are always willing to give you the middle finger and do whatever they want anyway. So this is a way of kind of cutting them out of the... <laughs> Yeah, and wastewater treatment, you still need that biological process, all right? That secondary mm -hmm. biological nutrient process upstream of that uh, uh, MBR. And again, it's serving as that filter, uh, that yeah. really that tertiary step. 
But, you know, each of these options or technologies that are available are viable and have their right place, whether we're using a filter, like a cloth filter, disc filter, sand filter, they each require maintenance and support. But the confidence in a membrane, whether it be a microfilter or other, is that we are removing or a physical barrier to a certain size that's smaller than all those other type of entities. Yeah. I think when they run, they're beautiful. And then when they don't, it sucks. So <laughs> for most people. Yeah. Um, you know, such as with, you know, reverse osmosis or nanofiltration, higher pressure means a little bit more um, damage when something goes wrong. Right. So just yeah. having a robust enough system to handle or respond to that low pressure systems, a lot less pressure on, you know, literally pressure yeah. on getting that right. But just designing and investing in enough resiliency to respond to change. I think like most treatment systems and hydraulic systems together, designing and understanding what that variability is just because our average is X. Is it X plus two for a peak or X minus two for the minimum? And mm -hmm. what if the quality of that influent changes and by how much is your system designed to accommodate that? What I see a lot when you get into larger systems, million gallons, 50 million gallons, 200 million gallons, they're really designed for peak performance when they're at their max operating rate. What if they're only getting 10% of their flow? Their performance is way off the... yeah way off the curve of, you know, planned performance, where having a membrane system helps smooth out that curve. So if your system or facility needs to start up lower than what your ultimate, uh, you know, build out capacity is, or if you have big variability swings where it needs to perform at low levels where you don't have equalization, an MBR can really help turn down lower, turn up faster, in a conventional plant and give you that flexibility and really that that muscle to respond to uh, those type of concerns. Cool. So since you've been on both sides of the fence, operator and engineer, as an engineer, what would you want an operator to come to you with? What data, what information, you know, if they've decided, okay, we want to go this way, what should they come with? Great question. Influent, but both for water and wastewater, just that influent quality. Mm -hmm. Those records are generally not required as frequently uh, sampled and recorded as effluent or performance samples. So, uh, you know, on the wastewater side, really, you know, your typical profile of your BOD or COD demand, your total suspended solids, your salt content, your total dissolved mm -hmm. solids, temperature, and nitrate, phosphorus, you know, key compliance parameters, but also oil and your grit, your actual colloidal or particle solids. So yeah. uh, most of these membranes have a restriction on fog, your foods, oils, and greases, at least to a certain percentage. So understanding what that could be, you know, if you're a septage receiving station, getting a high load from restaurants, that might be a problem. Yeah. So needing to know that up front. And then the other key item with that too is what your willingness to commit to learning or taking on new things and what your level of comfort is. There are different systems and configurations that can be selected to better fit the skill sets that you and your team have or want to focus on. Similarly, on the water side, that variation and in influent quality, we're making all of our decisions based off that and then with the compliance requirements on the back side. So on the water treatment side, again, those key constituents of concern. Um, also in the advanced water application, if we're taking tertiary effluent and then treating it through a water treatment plant, like a, a membrane treatment plant. Direct potable reuse, basically. Absolutely. Direct potable and, and or... Yeah, direct potable reuse, advanced <laughs> water treatment, however you want to call that. Um, is there going to be chlorine in the water? You know, chlorine yeah. and other chemicals is not a friend to most membrane uh, materials. So being aware of what that is, that'll definitely help drive that selection. And most of all, for both of those, what is available for waste management from that membrane process? Is this something that we've even thought and talked about? Because if not, that will be my first question. Yeah, where are you going to put it when it's done? Yep. Got it. Well, do you have any fun anecdotes or anything you can share with us from the field that you've seen? Oh, you know, I've learned all my lessons the hard way. Um, as <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to point anyone out, but the, um, I don't know if it's a fun anecdote, 
but you know, when it comes to membrane treatment for wastewater, uh, uh, you cannot forget about the biological control, right? This is still, um, you know, you're managing the environment for microbiology to do its job, which mm-hmm. is really the big benefit from this type of implementation. So where I've seen membrane systems kind of go sideways is just not monitoring or maintaining that biological health with the assumption that the membrane is going to, you know, uh, take in care of your nitrates and ammonia and the rest of your constituents. That's not yeah. generally the case. And then two, just the hands-on work of monitoring the system. So I've seen many times where the flux or the pressure or the performance of these membranes uh-huh. look like it was going great on SCADA, but you go out in the field and the you know it's... your local readings are something else. So uh-huh. taking the time to maybe not trust the computer and just go check for yourself. You know, that's always been the funnest thing to find where I think it's fine. And then, oh no, it's not. And then, yeah. you know, the quick response is needed. Cool. Well, anything else you'd like to share? about membranes. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about those experiences. I think that uh, membrane along with other technologies are just, you know, one of many options and alternatives to be considered. There's many ways to do that and areas that are restricted by not having one of those five options to dispose of that brine. That doesn't mean that, you know, membranes can't be used at all, but um, I'm very excited about the future of the balance of membrane and concentrate management to those solutions. And Uh I think it's something great for owners and engineers to consider for an alternative, especially in the realm of advanced treatment, where we have a a really good understanding of how to monitor the quality and health of a membrane system, the integrity to be that physical barrier for constituents Mm -hmm. that we know and don't know about that may be concerns for public health. Um, And I think it's a great solution. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us with that part. You're welcome. And for our listeners, his contact information will be in the show notes if you have questions. And with that, we're going to segue into the Wanda's Water Tidbit. This is the part of the show that's dedicated to my mom, and we just celebrate what's fun and sometimes brilliant in water. And today we're going to talk about music in the sewers. And I actually mentioned that one to my mom. She just started howling. She's like, you're kidding me. I'm like, no, this is a real thing, mom. Mm-hmm. Um, so during 2020, the summer of 2020, there was a group that did a concert series through, partway through, New York City's combined sewer outfall number BB029. And I was like, what in the world is this? when I saw that. And basically it was called Drain Bramage and it was organized by the musician and composer Stefan Stefan Zuniak or Zinuak. I'm probably slaughtering his name and I feel so bad. But he basically put together this eclectical musical exhibition and that took advantage of the unique acoustics, shall we say, of the combined sewer outfall that combined to the underground uh, Sunswick Creek and East River. So basically they would get on these flat barges or in a canoe or something, and they would play music as they went down the outfall. And all the people would basically sit around on the rocks around the outfall and listen to the music. I don't know that I mean, I would go because I was curious, but I don't know that I'd be able to take the whole family to go see something at the sewer (laughs) or that my family would go. (laughs) I just love this story and I love the idea. I I happen to have been a musician in a a past life and just love Uh the appreciation for that. But the uh, interesting thing is the draw to different acoustics, right? And interacting with communities, our society. So that's something I love for the arts, you know, whether it be music or theater or, you know, dance, how they choose and select different areas and locations to do that. And I think it's really great that they identified something like this, this outfall and took advantage of that. I'd love to have been there to hear what that sounded like, because I'm sure it sounded different from pretty much every seat. I am sure as well. And one of the challenges they talked about was trying to find four nights for the series where they had enough low tide so that they could float through and not be washed out, basically. (laughs) literally (laughs) right and they talked about how getting to it was a bit of a uh, treasure hunt you had to 
go into a certain parking lot and in that one corner there was a bit of a hole in the hedge and you go through the hedge and go down to the rocks and that's where you found the performance. So it was very unique, I think, very unique. I'm unsurprised to find out it's in New York, mm-hmm. but very unique. Yeah, I love that. And what's really interesting is, you know, stewards and designers and managers of infrastructure, we go out of our way to shield the public from things like this, both for their safety, but also for nuisance. And generally our thought or perception is that if people are unaware of it, then we're doing our job, right? The society keeps on going. But, you know, you look at the history of sewers and just wastewater in general, you go back not that far. And, you know, the sewers of Paris were built for the ability for, you know, people to visit them and tour them. The citizens demanded, i paying these tax dollars. I want to see this stuff. So it's interesting that they, you know, in New York, they had to kind of find their way to get people to it, to interact with it. I just think it's all really interesting. Yeah. Well, and that also leads us to another story about uh, music in the sewers, which... I actually haven't heard this before, but uh, you said you had. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is in Salt Lake City. They reported hearing those strange noises coming from the sewers. Some people are like, oh, it's aliens or something. But uh, this was really the sewer line rapid assessment tool. Now, do you guys call yeah. it sewer rat? I have. I, I'm, I'm not certain the manufacturer prefers that. I don't know for sure, but it is uh, for short. Rapid <laughs> okay. assessment. Yeah, sewer line, the SL rat. Um, but it's a acoustical method for mm-hmm. testing um, and assessing sewers, really probably any uh, gravity or, you know, non-full pipelines for their remaining capacity. And it's a way to help shorten the inspection and investment time and cost uh, to determine the health of your sewers. Yeah. And like I said, I haven't heard of it before, but uh, some people who were commenting on it, they were trying to figure out which tone it was that it was being used. And there was all sorts of comments about what it might be. I just thought that was interesting. It is. So this tool, what's done is a, um, uh, basically at uh, two manholes that are you know close to each other, generally mm-hmm. no manhole in between. Uh, a, a listening device is put in one manhole. So basically something just laid over the top and sticking down into that manhole. And on the other end, a device that's uh, transmitting an acoustical tone. Now it's interesting. I, I should have looked up ahead of time. What is that tone? Is it a G sharp or is it 60 millihertz or whatever it yeah. is? I don't know. But the two technicians, they'll engage these items and it will um, one will transmit this tone. And at the other end, it measures how much of that signal it picked up. And knowing the pipe material and the diameter of that pipeline, it can receive and tell you how much of that sound wave was absorbed, meaning there's water in so much of the pipe and how much was left. And what you can infer from that data is how much headspace or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, freeboard is available in the pipe. So what's done is that tone is then converted to a color or a number to represent whether the pipe is full or half full or empty. Mm-hmm. And the approach to this, uh, I had the opportunity to get familiar with this and implement this for a town here in Arizona, where okay. as part of a, a master plan and condition assessment of their wastewater system, we really couldn't afford and we advised that uh, on what money they had available, it did not make sense to try to hire and implement um, closed circuit TV cameras or CCTV to really send a robot through the sewers and uh-huh. and look at physically look at the condition of those pipes. But we did have enough time and money to go around with this SL RAT or this acoustical system. And that helped us very quickly survey the entire system within about a week. So five days of time, a crew out there working eight hours a day. And then taking those results, being able to plot them out geographically across the system and look at these different colors. And that helped us just focus in on which sewers were kind of out of capacity, right? Didn't uh-huh. have any space left in it. So then those few areas is where we went and used other tools such as CCTV or other devices to actually inspect that further. And what was interesting is there were places where it came back that no sound got through indicating a complete uh-huh. blockage. Yeah. And we were able to go and find out, yeah, there was debris in the sewer or something had to be fixed. So it really helped get to the heart of the matter quickly. But I've never thought about if people heard or what that sound would be going through the sewer. And obviously in this yeah. application that some people have heard that sound. And, you know, I've, I've been looking for like a recording of it or something like that to share. 
Uh, so if I find that, I'll throw it in the show notes. But I was just like, that would be really wild to just be walking by and hear a singing or, you know, a tone coming out of my sewer. I'd be just like, what the hey? You know, is there a person down there? What's going on? Yeah, I would be too. So yeah, thinking of it from the other side, it's always important as an engineer or operator to think about what this looks like from the other side. So I can appreciate it. Yeah, it's not aliens. It's just us. Yeah. Great. <laughs> well, Frederick, thank you so much again for your time. I really appreciate it. And for our listeners, just letting you know, contact information will be there in our show notes, as well as the articles uh, that we've discussed for the tidbit. And thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Human Environmental, formerly Probiotic Solutions. We offer a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. You can find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com. After November 1st, all of our online information will be at huma.us.